coming to you from beautiful Santa Barbara, California. Promoting peace, healthy living, and happiness. It's the Peace Podcast with host Barbara Gon Mueller. What an honor to welcome you today to peacepodcast.org. I'm Barbara Gon Mueller. And I have the privilege of talking to you today about human rights. Do you know that you have 30 human rights? Do you know that we have a world court of human rights? And today we're going to talk to the founder. In 2012, he was nominated and became the founder of the World Court of Human Rights. Now, what does that mean to you? Does that mean that you have, once your uh, human rights are violated, that Mark Ottinger, our guest today, will come and represent you? Let me just go backwards for a little bit. Let's introduce him from the law firm Bio. Mark's international upbringing was influenced in his development of expertise in public and private international law, which remains a cornerstone of his practice today. Mark is one of the handful of lawyers in Vermont knowledgeable in international contracts, customs, immigration, and outbound foreign investments. He also handles both criminal and family matters, including those with international aspects. So today, as we look, at the rights that we all have. Everyone on earth has certain rights and freedoms. He's a seasoned attorney, educator, author with extensive experience in judicial systems and the rule of law. So Mark, I welcome you to peacepodcast.org. Thank you, it's a privilege to be here. Well, I met him through the People Powered Planet, which is an online um, Wednesday morning show and I said, holy my goodness, this man has done more for our world than so many of the people we were talking about prior to our podcast today have done. He is right there at the forefront. So Mark, let's just start at the beginning. What is the World Court of Human Rights and what is its function? Well, the World Court of Human Rights is something that's been discussed since uh, as early as 1947 which was the year before the United Nations passed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, it's important to understand that the Universal Declaration is not a treaty. It is, in fact, a declaration. But from the declaration have emanated through the United Nations several, some say nine, uh, global in scope human rights conventions such as the Civil and Political Treaty and the Cultural, Economic, and uh, Social Treaty, um, the Treaty that Protects the Interests of Women, the Treaty that Protects the Interests of Children, of Indigenous People, uh, a Treaty that uh, Prohibits Discrimination on the Basis of Race. So it was back in 1948, December 10th, when the UN passed the Universal Declaration, and since that time, um, any number of human rights treaties, which are in the nature of we call it public international law. Um, these are basically contractual relationships that are developed between and among nation states. Um, and many of these human rights treaties are, have been joined by the vast majority of the 195 or so countries in the world now. Um, and so how are, the, how are people's rights under those conventions adjudicated? And the answer is um, that in some cases they can be those rights can be uh, 
protected through national courts. So we here in the United States could go to our federal court system and argue that uh, to the extent that the U.S. has entered into one or more of these treaties, that it essentially has become domestic U.S. law. And, and that should carry the day. Um, but to the extent that countries have not joined into these treaties, there are other options, such as the regional courts of human rights. There's one in Europe, there's one for the inter-American system, there's one for the pan-African system. Uh, currently, there's nothing in Asia, which represents 60% of the world's population, and probably 90% of the world's uh, human rights violations. So the, the idea behind the World Court of Human Rights would be that it would essentially unify the jurisprudence, in other words, the case law, and the practice worldwide around this public, this body of public international law of human rights um, so that the regional courts that currently exist would be augmented by a court in Asia and that a world court of human rights uh, would sit on top of that and harmonize decisions that come out from the regional courts um, and basically continue creating a, a, a body of law, a body of decisional case law that um, would help um, individuals and groups of individuals, what we call class action individuals, uh, to protect their rights. And so, as I said, it started, the conversation began in 1947. There was another effort in the late 1970s, um, but it was only since 2013 um, that we, we, through an international collaboration amongst the academics and uh, international judges and human rights experts, have now created a statute or a blueprint for the World Court of Human Rights. And we're working on trying to get uh, a critical number of nation states to go before the United Nations, tee up conversation about this proposed treaty and set the World Court of Human Rights finally in motion um, 80 years or so beyond, you know, after the, uh, the, inter the, the Universal Declaration was passed. And so that's basically our mission. It's a wonderful mission. And is this a new idea for um, human rights to have a court? Well, it's an idea that's been thought about for a long time. And some of the pundits um, ask the question, is the world ready? You know, are nation states ready to sign on to a treaty that could hold them accountable for uh, violations of human rights in their own countries? Um, you might think that that's kind of a non-starter. Um, but then again, if you look at the body of human rights law currently, you'll find that the vast majority of nation states have signed on to most of the human rights treaties. And so we're trending in a good direction. Um, but no, it's nothing new. Um, but it is also a reflection, I think, of an evolution um, toward a more global protection of rights that are becoming more sort of globally recognized and more universally, albeit not truly universally at this stage yet adopted. And so it's, uh, it's something that is, uh, in a sense, of course, 80 years, looking back 80 years is sort of a blink in the eye of, uh, you know, human history. And uh, if you look at the extent of the accession is the technical term of nation states to treaties, and especially those regarding human rights, the, the web of protections, this body of public international law that kind of mimics world law in a sense, is becoming more and more coate. And, um, and so I think that if, if you were to fast forward 80 years into the future, you would find that would be, we would be in a much more uh, protected environment from a human rights standpoint. And we're sort of perhaps halfway on the continuum. And it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing struggle. 
Um, but I've seen in the eight or so years that I've been involved in it, I've seen already a lot of progress. You know, it's so interesting because you and I have something in common. We both knew Gary Davis. And I know our listeners would love to hear a snippet of how Gary Davis and you met. It's just fascinating. I was sitting in my office uh, one day, as I am right now, and I got a call from the local federal court. Um, somebody, the judge there, had it was somebody who had traveled with me to the former Soviet Union on rule of law work. He knew me as an internationalist, and he had before him Gary Davis and um, another individual, um, a woman who was had arguably been illegal in the United States. She had gone to Canada for um, medical care. We live right near the Canadian border here in Vermont. And um, then when she tried to come back after having had her operation, um, she was denied entry. And so Gary learned of this. He was a, he was. Uh, he was incensed by it. He was also a pilot from the Second World War, as probably our listeners know. Um, and so he had access to an airplane and he flew it up to uh, Montreal and he picked her up and he brought her back to Vermont. When he came back, he was promptly detained, as was she, and the plane was impounded. Um, and it was essentially a, an act of political theater, an act of civil disobedience, if you will, as Gary was fond of engaging in. And I, the prosecutors here, the U.S. Attorney's Office, didn't feel that it was appropriate to prosecute him, um, but they felt that as a sort of middle ground, they would seek the forfeiture of the aircraft. And the way these things work, I mean, if you, if you use a piece of personal property, like a house, which is real property, but a house, an airplane, uh, in the furtherance of illegal activity, the, that item can be forfeited to the government. And what happens often is if there is a forfeitable offense, if you will, that the government will still give the owner of the property an opportunity to get the property back upon the payment of some sort of a penalty, typically 10 or 15 or 20 percent of the value of the asset. Um, but in that process, and, and so it's a civil proceeding, so you're technically not entitled to a, a lawyer at government expense. Uh, in this particular case, Judge Sessions um, issued an order basically appointing me to represent Gary uh, under a somewhat unusual circumstances, but um, Gary decided as sort of as a further uh, exercise of his political theater, if you will, to essentially decline the option of paying a penalty and getting the aircraft back, but rather letting the government seize the aircraft to demonstrate, um, uh, let's say, the, uh, you know, the, the, the bankrupt nature of the law in question. He believed in the ability to travel freely across national borders. Uh, he cited the Universal Declaration of Human Rights for that purpose. He disregarded essentially immigration rules. He created the world passport. Um, and so uh, that's how I met him. And I believe it was back in 2000. And, you know, he lived in the town next to mine. It's about a five minute drive. And we became very close friends. And, um, and so through that process, uh, I got to be familiar with his work and uh, on his deathbed, if you will, at the age of, I think it was 93, he asked me if I would continue part of his legacy. And so I sort of chose from amongst his many activities, the World Court of Human Rights, as um, that piece that I was willing to pick up and carry forward. 
And that is precisely what I've done since approximately 2013, having traveled to India three times with the World Chief Justice meeting and having worked to create this draft statute and now being on the precipice, if you will, of getting a critical mass of countries to actually debate the issue in front of the United Nations and hopefully finally create the court. That is the most wonderful story. You know, as we live our lives, the coincidences that happen, how we meet people at, right at the moment when they need you there. And the World, court of Criminal, the World Criminal Court of Human Rights would never have happened if it wouldn't have been for that moment when he decided that he was going to not do what they wanted. He was going to allow the injustice of this moment to play out fully and then to invite you to carry on his work. I know his work is still going through the World Service Authority, and I, I met David Gallup, and he's running this so well. And there was Gary Davis. I always say Gary Davis was one of the bravest heroes on the planet. He was brave. He saw what was a, the, the criminal act of shooting other people to bring peace. Is that possible? Think about the logic of that, right? Well, he, his experience was as a bomber pilot in World War II, um, you know, and he was very gung-ho about the whole thing initially. His older brother, whom he idolized, um, was in the Navy. And so at the earliest opportunity that Gary had, sort of through his uh, sense of patriotism, he uh, volunteered. He entered the Air Force. Uh, his brother died in, uh, you know, in a ship that sank after it was torpedoed. And, um, and that really um, changed Gary's perspective. And also flying over the damaged parts of uh, Dresden, I think it was, uh, parts of Europe, um, suddenly made Gary realize that by engaging in this war process, he was not serving humanity well. And so he wanted to, uh, in, on the strength of that, he went to Paris in 1948, when the United Nations was almost brand new, immediately following the uh, Second World War. Uh, they did three months in Paris, basically as a, you know, almost like a traveling uh, roadshow, if you will. And uh, Gary Davis uh, camped out there, literally, at the doorstep of where they were meeting, um, drew a huge crowd, uh, including many of the intellectuals of the day, Andre Guide, um, Albert Camus, uh, Albert Einstein, um, the U.S. representative to the United Nations at that time was Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, which ties us back into the creation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, the Time Mag or the Life magazine of the day chronicled um, when Gary basically disrupted the meeting of the United Nations from the balcony, along with these other like-minded intellectual dissidents, and um, arguably had the impact of um, preventing the Soviet Union from using its veto power to stop the enactment of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They had threatened to veto it. And just as they still have today, the five major uh, member nations all have veto power. Um, for some reason, following Gary's disruption of the events, uh, which they allowed to go on for almost an hour. Um, and so the UN was really affected by his presence. The media picked it up. The next day or the next couple of days, there was a group of 20,000 people that, that sort of immediately came to a velodrome nearby to hear him speak. I mean, he became an instant sensation. Um, and so uh, perhaps because of his 
actions, his civil disobedience, the Soviet Union decided not to veto the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and here we are. Um, and so um, that was, uh, you know, that was the start for Gary of 65 years of advocacy for a world order, for world law. Um, and again, when he asked me to sort of pick up the baton, in a sense, um, that's too much of a big baton. I have a very, very busy practice and many other things that I do. But, but from amongst the various things that, that he was so passionate about, I am equally passionate about a world court of human rights. And so that's what I've picked up. And I'm hopeful that perhaps yet during my lifetime, we will be able to see a world court of human rights become a reality. Uh, and that the naysayers who said, we're not sure that the world is ready yet, perhaps the uh, perhaps they would be proven wrong. Well, you know, Gary Davis, as I said, was so verbal. He was a lawyer. He was brilliant. And for him to go to the United Nations and to make a speech was powerful. And you know, I always say, I always quote Maya Angelou, the human voice, your words are on paper, but when you use your human voice, you change history. He did. He changed the course of the human rights, the Bill of Human Rights, the International Court. I'm hoping we will come into its full, full potential with your help. You know, people are listening and think, oh, I can't do all this. Gary Davis was brave. Mark's brilliant. What can I do? What's the next step, Mark? What can they do? <clears throat> so I think the, what the rank and file individuals can do that are interested in this, that believe in the, the mission of creating a world court of human rights, they can do two things. Um, one is relatively easy uh, and one is, is perhaps more complex. The easy piece is just to sort of spread the word. Uh, talk about it. The more people that know about it, I mean, you mentioned that you and I met on a podcast about a week ago. Um, I take every opportunity that, that I can find to distribute information about the World Court of Human Rights. For example, there is a website that is uh, www.worldcourtofhumanrights.net, N-E-T. Um, that, you know, spread the word, tell people about that. Uh, there's a comment page there. Make comments. I review all of those comments. Um, so spread the word, basically. Uh, that's what the rank and file can do. The bigger question is, what we need to do is we need to get the critical number of nation states to essentially um, promote the World Court of Human Rights through the United Nations Treaty Accession process. So um, there are a number of efforts that we have uh, underway for that purpose. Um, I have met with uh, delegations from India. I have met with our Vermont uh, U.S. congressional delegation. I've met with uh, the basically the number two in India when I was over there um, presenting at the, uh, the meeting of the world chief justices. Um, the piece that I'm trying to do in the, the next number of years that I have left to devote to this is to get the critical number of nation states to actually debate this issue before the United Nations. There are several contexts in the United Nations where that can be done. There's a third committee, there's a sixth committee. Um, there are human rights organs actually within the United Nations. Um, it's just like legislation before the United States Congress. Um, the more sponsors you have for a particular bill, the more influential those sponsors, the greater the likelihood of passing that piece of legislation. And essentially, the creation, the incubation of a treaty and the creation of a court system, 
uh, or an international body through that treaty is almost in the nature of creating legislation at the world level. Now, it's, it's a bit of a mixed metaphor because there's obviously not a world level government, so it's not true legislation. But when countries basically adopt treaties, make the law of the treaty their own, recognize the decisions of the treaty body, in this case, a World Court of Human Rights, as having the authority of binding decisions within their own country, that's when we are going to actually um, see a court that will be able to adjudicate issues such as you know, the plight of six million Syrian refugees or the Rohingya and how they're being mistreated as a result of their religious beliefs or you know, the actions of Boko Haram in Nigeria trying to uh, kidnap and deprive education from uh, girls and women. Um, so that, those are the two, two things I think people can do. Number one, spread the word. And number two, um, I'm not sure exactly how I would say the rank and file can contribute to the likelihood of the United Nations taking this issue up. Um, but I think that if there is enough grassroots activity, um, it will happen. Yes, I'm with you. Go back, go back a second and repeat the website. It's www.worldcourtofhumanrights.com. Dot net. Dot net. Okay. World Court of Human Rights dot net. Mark has made the point, and so did Gary, by standing up there in the balcony at the United Nations, <clears throat> pleading with Russia to approve the International Court, um, not the court, but the International Bill of Human Rights. I remember Eleanor, I don't remember Eleanor Roosevelt because I was pretty young, but my husband was an intern at the United Nations the day that they approved it. I think it was like midnight. And they walked out with such happiness in their voices. And the media said, this is a document we can throw in the trash. And my husband, an intern, again, voice, 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 said, mark my words. This will be the most translated document on the planet besides the Bible. And it is, it is, Mark, it is the most translated volume of people and document of our human rights. Now, if you say to somebody, do you know how many human rights you have? Most people don't even know that. The International Law of Human Rights, we have 30 human rights. Read about them. Go to www. Again, let's have that website, Mark, so we can get three times is what Edward Bernays, the founder of PR, said before somebody really gets it. WorldCourtOfHumanRights.net. All right. If you don't know your human rights, I'm going to ask you to go to peacepodcast.org in the comments section of our app, write down, I would like to have the uh, document about the human rights and I will send it to you. No cost, nothing. And you can go to um, unasb.org and you can see all of the human rights along with the sustainable development goals. I'm Barbara Gahn-Mueller. With your help, with the listener's help, we can create a world that works for all. We can create a culture of peace. And I thank you for listening. Get the app. Let us hear from you. You know, Mark told the truth. I wrote in the comments section of his website. And there he climbed right back to me and said, I'm glad you wrote. He is honest. He will tell you what you need to hear. I'm Barbara Gahn-Mueller saying, please join us again next week. Peacepodcast.org is here for you to become active to work with the International Court of Human Rights, which will eventually happen. There's Ben Ferenz, who worked with the wonderful Nuremberg trial. These are people who are making a difference. We have 80 plus members of our world 
who are telling you that peace is possible. I thank you for listening. Join us again next week. Thanks, Mark. Thank you, Barbara. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. God bless you. All right, people. It's up to us, not you, not me, but all of us as a world that works for all. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.